Thank you, Josiah and team. We're finishing up a four-week series called How to Be Fearless in Uncertain Times. There is no question that we are in uncertain times. We're in difficult times as well. And and the way that we get through it is to look back at others who went through uncertain times and difficult times and, and see how they got through it and maybe even copy a little bit what they did. And there's a passage, there's a chapter in um, Hebrews where it gives us a list of people who went through uncertain times. It's called the faith chapter, the heroes of faith, where it starts to give a list of people that went through uncertain times, very difficult times, and what they used to get through it. And uh, the answer, since it's called the faith chapter, um, is faith. But observing how their faith got them through the uncertain times is definitely the example that we want to look at and we want to uh, try to find, uh, um, find areas of how we can survive it as well in regards to what they did. So after the faith chapter, we start in chapter 12, and that's where we're going to work at today is chapter 12. Uh, it gives challenge to us. It gives us a list of all the people in through uncertain times, the dynamics of the faith that they had, the faith that they held on to, and the nuts and bolts there. And then it moves into chapter 11, and then it gives us a challenge. It just literally just speaks right to us. Um, not speaking about them is chapter 11, uh, chapter 12 is just speaking right to us. And so let's look at the passage. But before we do, number one in our notes, to be fearless in uncertain times, fix your eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of your faith. We're going to read four verses, but there's one point in four verses. Just one point. The point is right in the middle, and it is fix your eyes on Jesus because he is the author and he is the perfecter of our faith. So there's a lot of information that comes in the top two verses and a lot of information that goes in the bottom two verses, but it still hinges on that one point. So as we're looking at that one point, we will go through the dynamics of what is being at the top and what is being at the bottom as we work on the concept of if we're going to get through this, we need to fix our eyes on Jesus. Let's read the passage, Hebrews 12, 1 through 4. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders in the sin that so easily entangles, and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us. Let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinful men, so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. What does fix your eyes on Jesus mean? Fix your eyes on Jesus. The word fix is is a, a Greek term that even explains take your eyes off of something else and put it on this item instead. Take your eyes off of something else and put it on this item instead. Put all of your energy, all of your focus, your entire mind, your entire heart, everything that you have, put it on this instead of this. Don't be obsessed with things. Don't be distracted by things. Don't be ruled by things. Don't be controlled by things. Don't be owned by things. Put everything, all your focus, energy, emotional power, specifically on Jesus. And it's even talking about in this world, because as we live in this world, we have all these things come at us. And as all these things come at us, we can easily get distracted and pull our eyes off of Jesus. We can easily be ruled by what has taken place and take our eyes off Jesus. We can easily be controlled with the happenings that are out there rather than putting our eyes on Jesus. But the direction that was given to us is put our eyes on Jesus because he is the author, means he's the pioneer who started faith, 
and he is the perfecter means that he will be the one that will carry you through these items. Anything that ever takes place in the world is not going to carry you through. Nothing will carry you through. He's the author, perfecter. He's the only one that carries you through. Therefore, do not keep your eyes on this. Keep your eyes on this, which is Christ Jesus. I'm taking up dirt bike riding again the last couple of years. And uh, I did it a little bit in high school and uh, when I was, you know, limber and, and strong and in shape. And then I just started again, you know, at 46 years old when I'm not limber, strong, or in shape uh, anymore. And it is difficult. And as it is difficult, you know, I'm being instructed on how to do it because it is a fast-moving pace. I go with people that are extremely experienced, so I just try to keep up. And you go really, really fast, and as you go really, really fast, there's a whole bunch of different obstacles, rocks, stones, roots that are, that are on the trail. And uh, so you're breaking and moving and, and going, but what the instructor told me to do is never look at the obstacle. Never look at any of the rocks that are on the trail. He said, just look up and look at where you want to go. And when you look up at where you want to go, you will miss the rocks. And I will tell you that it's the most uncomfortable feeling in the world to look up and still miss the rocks as you're consistently going. But he says, if you look at the rock, what happens? You will hit the rock. So if you look at the rock and say, I'm going to avoid it, you look at the root and say, I'm going to avoid it, what you will do is you actually drive right into it. The instinct is to look up, and then you will literally be carried through it all. It is the exact same thing with Christ. Don't look at the obstacles that are on the way. Don't look at the world that is falling apart. Don't look at everything that is, because if we do look at it, make it our focus, make it our drive, make it our mission, make it our understanding, make it the thing that consumes our heart we will go a direction that will literally destroy us. He's just look up. The author, perfecter of your faith, this is where I'm going to go, and I'm not going to look down. I'm going to look up. Number two, don't let weight of the world pull you down. Fix your eyes on Jesus. We're rafting the Grand Canyon, and uh, we're leaving the 9th of August, and it's a 240-mile float, and we'll be on the river for 16 days. Um, there's no roads into the Grand Canyon. Once you start, you have to go all the way down. There's no rescue except through helicopter. There's just no way out. And everything that you put on your raft, you have to carry all the way through. So we have uh, a couple people that are organizing it that are a lot sharper than I am and uh, very, very organized. And they said, well, what we're going to do is we need to calculate all the weight, calculate all the boats, calculate all the freezers, calculate everything. So they um, did an estimate on how much weight we were going to bring. And you know what they said? It's going to be about 15,000 pounds of weight that we'll bring on six rafts that we have to carry all the way down the river. And I've gone before, and I'm like, 16, 15, 16,000 pounds of weight? I was like floored, shocked. I've never calculated, but they said, yeah, if you weigh an oar, this is what an oar weighs. We got four oars per six boats. I mean, this is going to be a lot of weight, and the weight is going to be an issue. Pastor D is going to go, and we're not going to put a lot of weight on his boat because we're expecting him to flip on a couple rapids, and when we flip on a couple rapids, we're going to have to pull him back. But when we start loading these boats up and going down the river, we don't get to cast it off. Um, I will tell you that, that there's a lot of restrictions on the Grand Canyon. We're not even supposed to leave specks of dirt, specks of food as we put tarps underneath all of our things because they don't want any weight cast off, they don't want any trash in the river, and they want nothing exited from the boat. So as we're going down the Grand Canyon, if we don't like our weight, we don't get to throw it off. It's just, it's just the way it is. We have to carry it all the way through, even though it hinders us. Hebrews 12, therefore, since we are surrounded by such a cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders us. If something is a problem that's hindering us, hindering us just throw it off. 
the NASB says, set aside encumbrance. What is the word encumbrance? Encumbrance is whatever is prominent, whatever is bulk, whatever is a burden, whatever is a weight, just throw it off. Just take, get rid of it. And we live in this world, and how can we throw it off? How can we throw it off? Or how can we even make the statement that we live in this crazy world that we're living in with all these things that are coming down on us? How can we remove and shift that weight from us? The direction is, is to fix your eyes on Jesus because we're not supposed to carry the weight that is put on us. We're not supposed to carry the weight that is on our shoulders. We're supposed to give it all to Jesus. See, there's a, a biblical answer. There's an answer in Christianity that we can throw off our weight because God says, I'm the one that's going to carry the weight. I'm the one that's carrying the burden. Fix your eyes on me, and I will remove the weight. Our world is being pressured with a massive amount of weight. Just 9,985,508 people have been affected with the virus. That's a huge, huge weight. 500,579 deaths. The economical troubles that we are going through right now, there's such a weight, there's such a burden. And then we also have personal burdens going through divorce, going through broken relationships, going through children that are rebelling, just the different things that are taking place, there is a lot of weight. Is it possible to just cast it off? Is it possible to just throw it away? Is it possible to set it aside? Fixing your eyes on Jesus is setting it aside. Do you see what happens is that you have a new focus, and the focus is not the stone or the obstacle. The focus is fixing your eyes on Christ, the author and giver of life, as he consistently perfects our faith when we do it. There is power in fixing our eyes on Jesus. Power because we're not distracted by things, we're not ruled by things, we're not controlled by things, we're not owned by things, but when we fix our eyes on Jesus, we start to be owned by something else. We start to be owned by his love, his comfort, his strength, his salvation. Number three, Don't let sin, current affairs, entangle you. Fix your eyes on Jesus. When we talk about sin, and this passage is going to bring this up, is that we are under a cloud of sin. What I mean about under a cloud of sin is that we are sinners, and everybody else is as well. So if everybody in the room is sinners, and I'm a sinner, I hold my weight in what I do in regards to sin, because there's a weight and there's a pressure that's on me, but I also hold your sin, and you hold my sin. You see what happens? There's a, there's a corporate sin out there, and it's called the nature of sin that all of us are carrying in this world. So if our world is sinning, we're going to hold the weight. If we are sinning, we're going to distribute weight onto other people because sin is the umbrella which literally pulls the world down. Hebrews 12, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles us. The sin is not my sin. It doesn't say my sin. It's not getting specific with me. It's getting specific with the corporate body. The sin, that is out there. It is a fog, and it will entangle you. Entangle means skillfully surround, take, and abuse. Completely wrap us up. Completely consume our minds. Completely consume our hearts. You see, there's a wicked voice out there. And the wicked voice out there in the news or wherever it's at is the sin that has taken place. And as we look at it, we know that it's a weight and we can consistently and easily get entangled into it. 
I get entangled to it. I look at the news, and when I look at the news, I get wrapped up inside of the news, and I get entangled. It might not even be my sin. It might be other sins that's out there, but it takes a grip on me, and it holds me. It pulls me, and what's the challenge? Fix your eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. You will be stronger in faith by letting go if you fix your eyes here rather than fix your eyes there. Number four, don't let pain, agony derail you. Fix your eyes on Jesus. Pain and agony is something that needs immediate attention. Hebrews 12, let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us. The race marked out for us. What does the word race mean? Because it's used consistently in the Bible, um, the word that we are running a race and and uh, we think of it automatically to um, an athlete that is going through something. But the word, the Greek word for race is agon. And agon is where we get our English word agony. In other words, you are going to go to the field and you are going to have agon. Agony in a process while you run. I mean, we sit there and we love football games. And as we love football games, We'll sit there and we'll cheer our fans on and we'll or, or cheer our, our athletes on and, and we'll scream and we'll rant and we'll rave. And, and of course, we want it to take place in the fall because we can't wait to get to rant and rave. But what's taking place in the field? What's taking place in the field is people who have ripped their muscles for years, who've gone into training, have torn themselves to be strong enough to be in front of you as they're running that race. And even as they're on the field, yes, pain and, and, and things are taking place as they're consistently running. We're consistently cheering them on, but they had to get there somehow. And the way they got there somehow is they, they ran this agony. They ran this race. You know what exercise is? Exercise is taking a muscle and making it hard to do its job. Exercise is taking a muscle and making it very, very hard to do its job. Let's just look at uh, curls, hand curls for instance. My job is, my um, natural flow of my arm is supposed to go just like this. That's a natural flow of my arm. If I take something like a weight and I put it on my arm and it's, I make it hard to do its job, what happens? I look like a fool. Why do I look like a fool? Because it's supposed to go like this, but it's a lot slower going like this, consistently slower. It's making it very, very difficult for my muscles to work in that process. But when your muscles are straining and your muscles are having a difficult time functioning because there's resistance that is out there, what has taken place? You're getting stronger and stronger and stronger and stronger. You are opposing the natural flow of an arm when you do exercise. You're bringing opposition into your body when you're doing exercise. And we know the concept. Bring opposition. And when opposition comes, you'll get stronger and stronger and stronger and stronger. Suffering is opposing the natural function of how life is supposed to flow. Suffering is opposing the natural function on how life is supposed to flow. Just as a physical assertion is necessary for health, your patience will never grow unless it's threatened. Your compassion will never grow unless it's stretched, and your courage will never grow unless it's challenged. What is suffering? Suffering is literal resistance. It is resistance that is coming your way, and as resistance comes our way, we do want to cast it off. We do want to avoid it, but there's something else that the Bible is saying, and the Bible is saying, don't let it derail you, because if you don't let it derail you, it will do nothing but strengthen you 
for a purpose. In school, they don't give you answers. They give you problems. And the reason why they give you problems is because they want you to be strong. So I'd ask the question, is there a certain amount of suffering that we have to have in this world to be somebody that is not an entire wimp? See, God has given us opportunity to minister. God has given us opportunity to proclaim his amazing love, to proclaim his amazing beauty and his righteousness. We have a mission in mind. And with this mission in mind, we're supposed to be in shape. We're supposed to be strong. I get in the morning and I wake up at five and my alarm goes off. And I'll tell you, there's some mornings, and this morning was the same morning, is that I'm like, I do not want to get out of bed. And I don't even want to come and preach a sermon. There's a lot of work. There's a lot of emotional energy. There's a lot of things that that take place in that. It's so much easier just to stay in bed. But as you stay in bed, is that the life that God has called us to live? No, we have to exert ourselves. And when we exert ourselves, different things will be posing us. Different things will be oppressing us. Different things will be coming at us. And we can look at it and say, we've got to get rid of all the things that are coming at us. Or we can look at the things and say, you know what? These things that are coming at us might be coming at us for a reason. Might be coming at us because God wants us to put, on, put us on the playing field in shape rather than lazy. A healthy protein bar tastes like garbage, but, it, but it's good for you. And if you think about trials and suffering, it's like, you know, I don't want any trials. I don't want any suffering. But sometimes it could be good for us. Good for us because we're not called to avoid everything that comes at us. We're called to be strong ambassadors of our faith, and conditioning is required. James 1, to consider it pure joy. Pure joy, my brothers, when you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith develops perseverance. Perseverance must finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking in anything. We shouldn't ask how to get out of our problems, we should be asking, what can we get from our problems? What is God trying to do even through our problems? Because there's going to be things that are going to oppose us. We live in a life that will consistently oppose us. We'll not function naturally as we're living in a world of sin. But as we're not functioning naturally, is it going to confine, is it going to strengthen us? Is it going to make us more strong? Is it going to make us more powerful? Or is it going to destroy Number five, don't let your situation or circumstance distract you. Of course, fix your eyes on Jesus. We all have a desire on where we want our lives to go, and we fight anything that threatens it. Hebrews 12 says, and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us. Who marks the race out for us? It's not, it's not us. It's not, it's not me. I mean, I, I didn't have, you know, any say in what's going on around the world. You didn't have any say of what's taking place around the world. There is a race that's marked out specifically for us. Who marked out this race? Who scheduled this race? Who put this race together? Who is in charge of the entire race that is happening? When you look at Paul, Paul had a passion in his heart. He had a passion in his mind. And what is his passion? His passion was good. His passion was healthy. What it was is get the gospel to the ends of the earth. Get the gospel to the ends of the earth. You might say that is a very noble cause, Paul. I am so proud that you are, this is Apostle Paul I'm talking about. I'm so proud that you are willing to do that. Go, 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 and make sure you get the gospel to the ends of the earth. 
In his mind, he was thinking, if I could just get to the Rome. Because if I can get to Rome, it is the epicenter of the world. And if it is the epicenter of the world, and I can put this gospel in Rome, the whole world will change by, by the, this gospel that is going to take place. But on Paul's journey to get to Rome, what took place? He was beaten. He was abused. He was locked up. He was thrown into prison. You ever think of Paul's mind while he's in prison? God, I'm trying to do you a favor. I'm trying to get your gospel into Rome. And then you have the schedule, but why am I locked up? God, I'm a good preacher. (laughs) I mean, maybe Paul's saying that. I'm a good preacher. And anybody I see, I'll give the gospel. But as I'm sitting here in prison, I only get to give the gospel to one man, and it's the guard, the guard that I'm chained to as I'm sitting here in prison. You only give me one man to preach to when I could be preaching to the whole world. I'm your vessel. I'm your man. But God had a different schedule. Paul, of course, preached to every single guard that, went, that got chained to him as he was in prison. He preached to everybody they came in contact with. But as he was sitting in prison, he didn't question God. He kept his eyes fixed on Jesus. And as he kept his eyes fixed on Jesus, what did he start doing? <laughs> he started writing some letters to churches that were struggling. And these letters that he wrote to churches that are struggling are known as the Pauline epistles that are given to us today. See, Paul's mind, if I could just get the gospel in Rome, then the world will be able to change. In God's mind, he says, just fix your eyes on me and I'll do what I want. And what did he want to do? (laughs) He wanted to write the Bible through the inspiration of Paul, through, not the inspiration of Paul, inspiration of God through Paul, and he wanted to use him as a vessel. And so as Paul was in prison, was he working? Of course he was working. The only reason he was working is he's fixed their eyes on Jesus. Not fixed his eyes even on ministry, but fixed his eyes on Jesus. Therefore, he used his prison as a pulpit. He used his pain as a microphone. And he used his suffering as a ministry because he worshiped a suffering Lord and a suffering king. And that was his ministry. That was, that was his drive. And for him to proclaim a suffering Lord to lost people, he understood the fact that I'm probably going to have to suffer. But I want to give people a principle. I want to give people strength to get through it. And that is, just fix your eyes on Jesus and then watch what happens. See what takes place in the world. And we see that through Paul's life. Here's Jesus talking to his disciples. I love this passage. It kind of throw you off because there's some passages in the Bible that you hear words and it's like, what? What did they just say? This is one of those passages. Matthew 10, 17. Jesus talking. Be on your guard against men. They will hand you over to be local councils and be flogged in their synagogues. On my account, you will be brought before governors and kings as witnesses to them and to the Gentiles. But when, you, when they arrest you, don't worry. Do not fear about what to say or how to say it. At that time, you will be given what to say, for it will not be you speaking, but the spirit of your father speaking through you. That passage, when I look at it, he's telling his disciples, you are going to be arrested. You're going to be handed before governors. You're going to be handed before witnesses. You are going to be flogged, which means whipped in the back, numerous times, removing your flesh in front of a council, in front of a synagogue. That's in front of a church. So here I am thinking, okay, Jesus is telling me, putting my feet in their disciples, that I'm going to stand in front of my church body, and as I stand in front of you, they are going to flog you, rip off my skin in front of everybody, and I will tell you, you go through convulsions because it is an extreme amount of pain. You are going to be flogged, but don't worry. Don't have any fear whatsoever. 
Now, whenever I think about being flogged in front of you, I tell you that I have a lot of fear because it would be ugly. But God isn't saying don't have fear about being flogged. Don't have fear about being arrested. Don't have fear about going through governors. Be afraid of what you're going to say. It's like, what do you mean, God? What are you talking about? You're going to put me through all this pain and you're concerned about what I say? You're not concerned about me even going through it? You're more concerned about what I, what I say? He says, yeah, don't, don't worry about what to say through this process because the Spirit of God will be speaking through you and the world will be changed as a result even as we go through suffering. As we go through suffering, I will tell you the last thing on our mind is often, what are we going to say? You know, I've got to be careful with my words as we're going through suffering. Uh, but that's the focus of God. The focus of God is obsession with ministry, obsession with impact, not necessarily obsession with suffering, but obsession with impact for God's kingdom and for also God's glory. Now, we don't like to hear that. And when we don't like to hear it, it's like, no, it's not all about God. It's all about me when I go through suffering. But when we go through suffering, according to this passage, it's all about God and his name being proclaimed. We live in very good times or we live in very bad times. And what I mean by good times where a revival can easily take place across this world um, or the church be revealed and the revival not take place is the concept of social media. What I mean by this concept of uh, social media is every single one of us has been given a pulpit. Every single one of us has an audience. Every single one of us can go to social media and you will get followers, you will get viewers. Uh, You have a congregation. So there's not just one pastor that you go and you listen to. And as you listen to the pastor, then you go out and you you, you find your strength in, in, in those things as you preach the word. There is, the Christians are now rising to a surface. The Christians now have a podium to proclaim the name of Jesus in their suffering. I will tell you that this, would be a, this is amazing times for revival in our land. And the reason why it's amazing times for revival in our land is because we all get to speak the word of God. And as we're speaking the word of God, what should it sound like? It should sound exactly like the Pauline epistles. It should sound like Romans. It should sound like <laughs> Philippians. It's just where he was considered all joy when I faced many trials. It should sound like James. See, as we're speaking and we have this voice, we can impact the world for Christ because we all have pulpits. We all have position. We all have people that are umbrella underneath us. We can proclaim the peace, the resurrection, and the beauty of Christ through our social media program, or we cannot fix our eyes on Jesus, and we could be going towards that rock, towards that stone, towards the world, and we can do the opposite. You see the position that the church is in? The position of the church is in a position of extreme growth, extreme beauty, extreme strength, or possibly extreme destruction in regards to whatever we say when we suffer. That's God's passion. But as they're being flogged, he's saying, be careful what you say. As we're walking through what we're walking through, the principles come to us. Be careful what we say. We should say exactly what the Pauline epistles are saying with that attitude. Number six, don't let self-pity ruin you. Fix your eyes on Jesus. There's never been a culture with lower pain threshold than ours. And um, I believe that. 
The reason why is because uh, we do have a God of, of comfort. So if you look back at history, they'll tell you that um, there's a lot of pain thresholds that are, are, are taking place. I go to Sierra Leone, and I'll tell you that they manage a pain threshold that is very, very strong. We worship different things, and as we're worshiping different things, we have been completely blessed as a nation. And as we're being completely blessed as a nation, we should thank God and praise God, but not worship the blessing, which is comfort. As we live in a, um, as we live with a low pain threshold of comfort, we have a tendency to write the Bible to kind of fit our needs and to kind of feed our carnality. And what I mean by writing the Bible to fit our needs and, and uh, fit our carnality is that we do come up with the concepts that God does not want me to suffer at all. God doesn't want me to suffer. And if I ask him, he'll redeem me instantly because he does not want me to suffer. God does not want me to go through any pain. And I'm not saying he wants to go through pain. He wants to go through suffering. But we can have the concept that God wants absolutely nothing to take place at all. God wants me to be completely prosperous. He does not want me to not have a job. He wants me to have a job. And we've written the Bible in a sense of this is what God wants for me. Love, prosperity, happiness, joy, peace, no suffering. I would tell you all those things come our way, but in it still comes suffering. Let's just look at Jesus's life. Jesus was born to an unwed mother. I mean, not easy. Jesus was born in a stable, born to poor parents. He was threatened as a baby by the King Herod. He moved often as he was a baby, running for his life. His parents were running for his life. He's raised in an ugly place called Nazareth. We see that in Matthew, <laughs> what good can come out of Nazareth. Nazareth is a junk town. His father died in his youth, supported his mother, his brothers, his sisters. Jesus had no home, not even a place to lay his head, according to Scripture. Jesus was hated and opposed by religionists, people that he came for, people that he was supposed to work with. He was hated and opposed, cast out. He was charged with insanity. Jesus Um, was charged with demon possession. He was betrayed by his friends. He was rejected. He was hated. He was forsaken. He was tried for treason. He was executed, and he was crucified. That is a very, very, very hard life. Every disciple but one who followed Jesus did not get prosperity. They got martyred. Very, very, very hard lives. Paul was the most righteous guy who ever lived, and as he's one of the most righteous guys who ever lived, he suffered more than anybody else. In fact, Jesus lived a perfect life, and the end result of living a perfect life, God killed him for it. I mean, when we, when we look at embracing Jesus, it's not looking at embracing Jesus in a sense that you will be prosperous here on this earth earth, it will be embracing Jesus for the impact for the kingdom of God and his glory and his beauty and his strength from generation to generation so people around us will be saved. And suffering, I'm just going to say with Paul, was his ministry. Suffering was his pulpit. Why? Because it was a microphone. It was his strength. It was his voice. And as he shared the voice, what was he proclaiming? He's proclaiming a crucified Savior. He had iron in his blood, and his backbone was a backbone of steel because he fixed his eyes on Jesus rather than anything that came off of, out, out of him. And as a result, the world has never been the same. The world has never been the same. Hebrews 12 says, In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted it to the point of shedding blood, but Jesus did. But Jesus did. Does Jesus do all the dying and we don't get any? 
The way to heaven is via tribulation just because of the way the world that we live in. It's via tribulation. We are going to face it because one day we are going to die just like everybody else is going to die. But that is the way to heaven. That is the race. That is the road to agony. Fix your eyes on Jesus. Be lifted beyond it. And as you're being lifted beyond it, others will see who we worship. Number seven, Christ is the only certain answer in uncertain world. Fix your eyes on him. God's servants, God's people, Christians do not live by explanations. They live by promises. We do not live by explanations. We live by promises. The world around us is living by an explanation. You explain this, you explain this, and then you kind of get a a form for this, and you get a system for this. We want explanations of why we're suffering. We're not living by explanations. We're living by a promise. And I will tell you that the promises that are given in the Word of God are promises that should take us, control us, use us, send us, Here's a promise. Let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. What is the only thing that Jesus did not have when he came to earth? Remember, Jesus left heaven. Jesus left heaven and he came to earth. What is the one thing that he does not have when he came to earth? The only thing that he did not have when he came to earth was, was us. He had everything else. He had glory. He had majesty. He had praise. He had worship. He had position. He had wealth. He had absolutely everything except a lost, sinful individual. And then you look at this passage. But for the joy set before me, I endured the cross. What is that word joy? Where does he get that word joy? He gets that word joy from the result of what the cross accomplished. And what is the result of the cross accomplished? The result that the cross accomplished is a relationship that we can have with him. Therefore, he laid down his life in extreme amount of suffering. And he did it with joy because his focus was relationship. And then he gives us the instruction, relationship with us. And he gives us an instruction. And the instruction is, fix your eyes on me. Don't fix your eyes on the cross that you're carrying. Don't fix your eyes on the struggles of the world. Don't fix your eyes anywhere else. Fix your eyes on me because for the joy I had going to the cross, you can have that same joy if you fix your eyes on me. Don't let the weight of the world pull you down. Don't let the fog of sin entangle you. Don't let pain derail you. Don't let situations distract you. Don't let suffering ruin you. The challenge is just fix your eyes on Jesus. Because he's the author, and he's the perfecter of faith. And when we do, he will perfect our faith as we live. God, we just thank you for the gift of salvation. Just reading the passage, for the joy set before you, you endured the cross. God, that statement there is a statement of love towards us. The King of kings and the Lord of lords showering his love on us. I just pray, God, that that is where we'll fix our eyes. Nowhere else, God. I just pray that we'll fix our eyes. It is powerful enough to uh, let us stand above this world and even stand above our sufferings. I just pray, God, for the church, the church of America, that we'll fix our eyes on there, on you, and nowhere else as we walk through this. God, it is time for revival, time where people can see your amazing love, your amazing grace. But God, as we suffer, I'll tell you, that's when your church grew more and more. I just pray, God, through this suffering that we're taking place, that your church would grow more and more. Don't let us turn aside. Help us to fix our eyes on you. In Christ's name, amen.